Hello, everyone, and welcome to the fifth episode of The Culture Economy. It is your host, Flex Chapman, and I am super pumped about today's episode. It's a great one, but before we get into that, I have a quick announcement to make. I will be speaking on a panel on behalf of the Krauss House. I will be up there with Cooper Turley, uh, Kinjal Sa, and mo- it will be moderated by Caroline Nguyen. So we are super pumped. It is going to be about the uh, intersection between communities, creators, and crypto. So a lot of talk about DAOs, a lot of talk about social tokens, um, and we're super excited. But we're not out of the woods yet. We'll need your help. The voting is live and active, I think, for the next few days. Uh, so I'll put a, a link in the show notes. And if you can jump in there, give us some votes, show us some love so we can get through. And hopefully we will be attending South by Southwest in Austin next March, March 2022. So if you could do that, much appreciated. It would be great. And hopefully I get to see you guys there. But the real reason you came today is to listen to the amazing uh, Annika Lewis. She co-wrote a fantastic article that's making its rounds. She's been on Twitter spaces. She's been on other podcasts, absolutely crushing it right now. Uh, she wrote the piece with David Phelps. It's called Collectivizing Finance. And what really kind of struck me about the article was, first of all, it's, it's fantastically written. Um, very articulated all thoughts that I kind of have scattered around possible futures of investments and institutional investing and investment DAOs. Very concise, very great. It took about two months for them to write, but very well worth it. Um, from the genesis of the article is a fantastic story. The outlooks, um, what what is what is some possible differences between investment DAOs and Web3 versus institutional investing and how they might merge one day in, into one and what that all looks like. If you haven't checked it out yet, you, it's a must read. I will link that in the show notes as well. And without further ado, let's jump right in. Uh, Annika, nice to have you here. We're, we're so pumped uh, to have you on the, on the culture economy. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. Thank you for having me. I'm stoked to be here. Awesome. Cool. Well, uh, if we could just jump right in and maybe talk a little bit about your, your background and um, uh, how you got started in venture capital. Definitely. Yeah. So, so for context, I work in early stage venture at a fund called Vantage Capital, where I focus primarily on investments in analytics and data infrastructure. Uh, been with the fund and on the institutional side for a couple of years now. But my background is all in sort of the intersection of financial services and analytics. So I spent a number of years working for a Fortune 500 bank, uh, both in Toronto and in New York, uh, doing kind of a lot of analytics work. And then in my last role working for the bank, I started working very closely with the company's internal venture arm, uh, looking at companies that, you know, on the startup side, we were thinking about making investments in or potentially acquiring and just fell in love with the startup world through that experience, knew it was something I wanted to do more of um, after moving on from banking. And so ended up finding the team at Vantage a couple of years now and been there ever since. That's awesome. Yeah, I share kind of a similar background. I was uh, in traditional finance as well. So uh, I think you made the, the right move going over to venture. It seems a lot more fun working with startups than than the traditional route, in my opinion. It's definitely a different <laughs> ballgame, that's for sure. That, yeah. So um, one of the reasons why I wanted to, to reach out is 
you you co-wrote a uh, fantastic article that's kind of making its rounds um, as of, I guess, the past like week or so um, called Collectivizing Finance. You wrote it with my, my internet bud, uh, da- David Phelps. He's awesome. I've been uh, reading his work for, for a long time. So um, excited to have you on, but wanted to kind of get in the in the background of, of how that piece kind of kind of came to fruition um, and kind of the artistic motif that I, I that I was looking at is kind of the whole thing end to end has been uh, collectivized uh, from the inception on on how you guys got started to write it and then even the some of the proceeds uh, that you made from from the article itself so you kind of walk us through how the whole piece came about yeah definitely it's been it's been an interesting process um, so David and I have known each other for a little while and we've done some writing together in the past and the genesis for this piece was that a friend of ours Mario Gabriele who runs the generalist Uh, wrote a submission on a platform called Ghost Knowledge, which basically allows people to request for writing that they might want to see published or created. And so Mario basically created a request for David and I to write specifically about the future of venture capital as it pertained to kind of multiplayer models. And that was a topic that the three of us had kind of been been discussing on the side for a little while. Um, So with Mario sort of submitting that and and putting that ask into the world for us to write this, um, you know, it got us thinking. And then on top of Mario's sort of request with the platform Ghost Knowledge, people can pile onto a request and support it. And there were, I think, 10 or 15 people who ended up joining Mario, pledging dollars uh, in order to see this written. And so David and I kind of said, all right, like there's, there's people who are willing to kind of put their money where their mouth is here. Um, we, should, we should write this and, and make this happen. And for, the, for that portion, for the Ghost Knowledge portion, uh, we're donating, no, donating all of the funds to AllRays and Black BC which are two uh, organizations kind of helping bring diversity into the venture capital space. So that's sort of the genesis of how, how this came to be. Um, that Ghost Knowledge Pledge, I believe, started off back in June, so a couple months ago. And uh, since then, we've been kind of co-writing you know, with, on a shared Google Doc, just jamming on all sorts of ideas. And interestingly, a lot has happened in this space sort of in the June, July, August timeframe. Um, from what happened with sushi swap to party bid, there's just been some very interesting data points on kind of the future of finance. And so the piece evolved a lot over the course of our writing it because uh, we wanted to incorporate all of those those components. Um, and then we released it last week. You also alluded to the fact that we we did release it in kind of a unique uh, a unique way. So um, David had the idea to release it as an NFT, uh, which we have also done through party bid. And so people can bid and own like a very small portion of the piece if they so choose, again, with, with the proceeds being um, kind of firstly donated back to the backers uh, as kind of a portion of equity in the piece, uh, and then the remainder being donated to, to more charitable organizations, um, including one being Mint Fund, which helps um, creators who are, who are um, creating their first NFT. Um, and so, yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of the, the whole story. And it's been, it's been a cool journey and had some nice feedback on the piece so far. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, like the the meta takeaway is that, you know, you guys are kind of fond of multiplayer and even multiplayer authorship. And then every step of the way, it was kind of this multiplayer adventure, which is crazy. It's kind of an atypical uh, partnership, at least when when it comes to um, as comes to writing and things like that. So that I mean, the whole thing uh, through and through is a, just an awesome story. Um, I think one of the other things that makes it like really, really powerful is I think David uh, kind of approach this from a uh, from a more startup and, and, and founder direction where you come through as a as more of a the institutional side which has also created a, just an amazing dynamic for the piece um will you kind of walk through 
um, some of the, the conditions that you laid out for uh, traditional uh, VCs. And like, I think the, the term you use is that it's kind of created its own conditions uh, uh, for its own uh, disintermediation, which I think is, is really fascinating. Will you kind of touch on that and, and, and describe a little bit more about that in detail from the institutional investor side? Yeah, absolutely. And and first of all, for anyone who's listening who doesn't have full context on the piece and, and maybe hasn't seen it yet, uh, you can go to annika.mirror.xyz and you can check out the piece Collectivizing Finance uh, or on David's substack called Three Porks. So if you want to look at that before you listen to this discussion, um, that might might give you some context. I'll, but, I'll, have, the show, I'll have the show notes ready to go. We'll have a perfect. full full bulleted list. Yeah. Perfect. Um, so yeah, so we, we talked in, in the piece about kind of venture capital and, and how institutional venture is structured today, which effectively, by and large, VCs are intermediaries between the investors, which are called the limited partners, and the founders um, who the VCs are investing in. And so the VCs will you know, pick startups uh, to invest in, the limited partners will be the ones who are actually investing the dollars, and the VC is sort of the intermediary there. And so David and I talked about kind of this intermediation as something that that might get disrupted in some senses when limited partners have a desire to be more actively involved. So limited partners are definitely not all one and the same. You're always going to have some who want kind of the more hands-off approach like you have with traditional money management in the public markets. But what we're seeing over the last decade or so is sort of this emerging class of younger LPs who often are writing smaller checks, who want to be really hands-on, who are super involved in the startup ecosystem. Maybe they're a startup CEO, maybe they work at a big tech company and they want to get involved in early stage angel investing. Um, and so we're seeing kind of this LP class emerging that has more than financial returns as their objective and has often a lot of resources and expertise to share. And so kind of what, what, what our thesis is, is that there's an opportunity for venture to kind of really take better advantage of the limited partners who are in these types of roles um, and reward them through things like carry sharing, which could happen through tokenization. Um, DAOs are another structure that might enable this. So there's all sorts of kind of fundamental you know, structures that, that could play a role here. But I think the general thesis is like, you know, venture capitalists do, do add value in, in certain cases as an intermediary, but there may be some limited partners that have a desire to be, to be less limited and to be more involved in the day-to-day -day, and they should be compensated for that. Sure. And like, I think you, I think you, you definitely hit a home run with that one because um, the DAOs is kind of an interesting model for that. Like I'm a co-creator in a DAO and I was just like incredibly surprised and I'm a contributor for a few more. And I was incredibly surprised the diversity of skill sets and talents that approach. So um, people that kind of funnel into DAO, especially as it is today, they're, they have a certain kind of mindset to be willing to be experimental and use their spare time to actually push things forward. And so if they contribute either, um, uh, I, I, sorry, I'll take that. I'll say they're not looking to necessarily only contribute financially. They want to actually get involved in use their skills that they've accrued over the years to actually push the DAO forward. And what's interesting about the investment side of things is that you could do that across multiple um, in, investments rather than just just one. So it's kind of an interesting an interesting thing. And so um, leads me into my question: is that traditional VCs right now, for the most part? Um, tend to be kind of like on this uh, kind of introduction layer, I'll call it, where it's like, hey, you should connect with this person and maybe they could help. Um, but what's interesting about DAOs is like one that comes to mind that we talked to called AngelDAO is that 
not only do they make their decisions pretty fast as far as funding, um, but they contribute to open source software to whatever you're building too. So whether it's your core product or, or, or you know, proliferary products that you could build and actually open source them, which I thought was a, a fascinating model. That's a really, really distinct and massive advantage. So um, kind of a two-part question is, is what are some other clear advantages that you see with instruments like uh, investment DAOs? And then also on the flip side, from an institutional perspective, what are some things that are core to the institutional model that are going to be take longer time to, to disrupt? So clear advantages on the investment DAO side of things, and then what is clearly distinct on the investional side that kind of um, still still makes them have a competitive advantage in the, in the, as far as uh, investments go? Yeah, good question. So I think on the first piece on the DAO side, you know, it's still super early days for DAOs. So we're, we're definitely all, all speculating here, but I'll say sort of what I've seen through my experience in DAOs so far is just this openness. Like I, I call it like default open, like everything is open. You can see all of the channels in the discord. You can see all of the documentation. Yeah. And I think just like from a venture perspective, like you're going to see, you, you will see venture investors like publishing their returns and publishing their reserves and all that. And I, I think you're just going to see a lot more transparency. I think you'll also see kind of more open networks in terms of connections, right? Like, as you said, right now, it's a lot about kind of introductions and things are fairly gated and it's all about who you know. And I think that will change. I think over time, it will help founders and, and also investors kind of be able to prove themselves in a more public way and just have a lot more access to to the types of people that they'll need to connect with. Um, so that's the first piece. Remind me what the second piece was. Yeah. So, so kind of, kind of the, the opposite question. So I think that's a clear advantage. Oh, right. from a, structures. It, it, Yeah, exactly. So Lightspeed, for example, we just mentioned them and Dreesen Horowitz, I'm sure with uh, the success that they've had, they have some clear distinct advantages on their side over something like an investment DAO. And so like from the, from your experience with institutional, what are those things where it'd say like, Hey, I have a nice product that I'm building. Like I'd rather take institutional money than go with an investment DAO. And I know it's not zero sum, but like, what are some of the advantages for taking institutional money? Got it. Yeah. I mean, so, so first of all, on the institutional side, kind of to your first question around like the traditional structures, I think a challenge in venture is, Venture capitalists are really good at thinking about how other industries are going to get disrupted, but not always mm. super good at their own. Um, I think, you know, there's still a lot of things in venture. And I talk to other investors about this all the time on how we do reporting and, and things that could just be like so much more automated. And, and even even incentive structures, you know, are sort of generally pretty vanilla with with fairly little innovation. Um, um, across the board, I would say um, it, there's definitely funds that are exceptions to that, but I think in general, VCs have been sort of um, stuck in our ways. And so I think um, that is one challenge. And I think things are starting to change even in the web two world, like with what AngelList is doing with carry sharing, whereby you can actually share carry as a VC with your LPs if they're, if they're kind of, you know, contributing to the company's success in a certain way. Um, I think that's a great step in the right direction. And so I think like, there's a number of kind of evolutions that will happen before we're in like a totally web three based investment world to yeah. your second question around like for a founder, what's the advantage of, of kind of taking capital from a DAO versus from a traditional VC. I think they're going to be, they're going to offer different value propositions, right? There's sure. always the question of brand and having a name like a Sequoia on your cap table and having that fundraising announcement out there will attract great talent and, and does open some doors. Um, and so I think it'll be interesting to see how brand evolves and will individual investors have more of a brand and you'll think more about specific names that are on a cap table versus a fund name. Um, mm. And I think, I think in today's world, like talking 2021, when DAOs are still very nascent, I think there's a lot of coordination benefits you get from a traditional fund, right? Like 
you just, you know, the kind of in terms of rallying up other investors, bringing together around, writing a term sheet, all of that. Um, whereas the DAOs are still still figuring things out. Um, and so I think that'll change over time. I think both will coexist for a very long while. Um, but I think it's just, it's, it's early days. And as a founder, if I were a founder today, putting my founder hat on, accepting capital from a DAO, there's just so many questions I would have um, because yeah. it's not even like totally clear what an investment DAO is yet. So uh, yeah, I think that's that's what I would say for for today's environment. Yeah, and then as you were saying, I think one of the, the glaring advantages is that from a regulatory perspective, VCs have it have it figured out. But there's totally. there's kind of yeah, there's some there's some uh, to say that it's up in the air is a, is an understatement right now. And so taking right. that, I don't know if it's a like I guess it does pose some of the risk from um, uh, from a founder's perspective, but it certainly poses risk from an investor perspective, right? Because um, tokenization, it's like okay, how how do we how are we going to do that uh, uh, without all the regulations that traditional VCs have to go through to, to get up and running. So um, that's, that's, that's a really, really valid point. The brand yeah, is really- like even, even leaving the venture model aside, like on tokenization, like before you think about who's investing in the token, there's still so much to figure out on security sure. tokens versus utility tokens and how the Howey test works and all of that. Like it's, it's just still incredibly, incredibly early. Um, but that said, I am, I'm excited for the future and for where tokenization will take us. Yeah. Agreed. Definitely. Definitely pulling for it. Um, let me see. So the brands is is really interesting. I want to kind of go back to that for a second. So it's like these Andreessen and Horowitz, which like it's no it's no secret that they're making a big kind of uh, media push, right? Like huge into podcasting, huge into blogging, and I think others are kind of doing uh, kind of a similar model. So um, will you describe what it means in, in detail for like have these uh, these these VCs having a kind of uh, branding power and like what that does to all the the um, maybe not so popular uh, VCs who can't really carry that power is like, is it going to affect deal flow? Is it going to affect what kinds of um, uh, industries that they can invest in? Cause I think it's a, it's a really strong point that I hadn't previously thought of. Yeah. I think you're always going to have in any industry kind of the few, you know, blue chip names that everyone looks to and, and sees as beacons and, and, and shows as, as proof of, of, of validation, right? Like mm-hmm. I think you, an inventor, those are, those are kind of some of the big names that you have. And, you know, by no means does every company that those firms invest in succeed, but you know, it has been historically a marker of 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 many successful companies. I think for for smaller funds, honestly, like like us, like we're a smaller Canadian-based fund, we need to find other ways to differentiate, right? And so whether it's through hiring or for or through network or through deep sector expertise and go-to-market expertise within a specific area, maybe it's working with super technical founders that aren't able to translate their story into the business side. There's a million different ways VCs, you know, claim to, to sort of add value. And I think it's about finding a niche and founders that are excited about that niche. Um, mm-hmm. That's how, how you can compete kind of beyond brand these days. Because yeah. as, 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 you know, as, as we all know, like capital right now is plentiful. There are lots of dollars out there. It's VCs chasing founders, not the other way around at this point mm-hmm. in the cycle. And so, yeah, venture funds are definitely um, having these conversations top of mind for how do we get into the best deals uh, relative to, to the others. Yeah, totally. And we're still so much in the nascent stages. Like it's really sometimes hard for me to step out outside and realize, hey, there's a ton of other really cool projects and spaces out there that aren't aren't Web three related. So like, there's a ton of um, there's a ton of capital to your point out there where where people are are are, are kind of or, or sorry, VCs are chasing those those founders in those industries. Their tokenization may not even be applicable at, at all. And in fact, probably most startups, it's not. So it's really yeah, hard to kind of. That's a really good point. And that's something I worry about a lot. And honestly, why why I didn't really get into crypto, first of all, in 2016, when I first learned about it, is I really felt like a lot of it was 
a very kind of hammer looking for a nail e and not kind of real real traction um and b i felt like a lot of the people that were super into crypto were just extremely one-sided touted crypto yeah. as the answer to everything and i think it's you know I, I honestly think the web3 community still can be that way a little bit like a little bit you know web3 is everything we should be on sure. web3 everything tomorrow i think there's definitely a happy medium i have no doubt that we are going to live in a future that is filled with possibility from the blockchain and and it will be kind of the the world's computing mechanism and web3 is is coming but mm -hmm. i think we need to be honest and real with ourselves about um you know how that evolution plays out and you know 99% of the world is still working in web2 and and we should be cognizant of that and realistic in in our assumptions yeah, it's really hard, especially my Twitter feed. Personally, it's just like you would think that that's the only thing going on in the world right now. And totally. it's just like, and when I explain to my friends who are in tech, who like who've never heard of MetaMask, I'm like, oh my god, okay, like this is this is still new. Like this is we're still we're still new here. Um, yeah, you really got to leave the world every so often to realize uh, how deep you are into it. I know. Well, if you have any tips, let me know because I'm so <laughs> I'm very I'm very very much in this in this world. Um, yeah, that's that's man, that's really really interesting. So back to like tokenization, like a, it's a really, really interesting uh, uh, concept in like, you know, fractional shares and, and, and the way that things are going from a, from a tokenomics perspective is, is, is fascinating. So how do you think, um, because the main kind of the headline for anything tokenized is, is, is liquidity, right? And so um, where before traditional VCs, it's often done by LPs or kind of just grant through, like all the things that you just mentioned, they, they give their money and they're hoping that maybe one or two portfolio companies returns the, the entire fund plus some, right? And so how do you think tokenization affects the entire VC model? Because it is like adding liquidity to a model like that traditionally, it throws some wrenches in things. Like it's, it's, it's very different. So how do you see it affecting, not necessarily on an institutional versus investment side, but just the tokenization of, of companies and what it can do for investors like how, how do you think how do you see the landscape evolving from that sense yeah so many so many thoughts here oh man okay let me start yes, with, with kind of something that david and i have been talking about a lot actually uh which is on the liquidity front which you alluded to right now and historically for sort of web2 investors you invest in a startup at whatever stage whether it's you know seed pre-seed series a and so on and so forth and you're waiting for one or two, one of two outcomes you're waiting for an acquisition or you're waiting for an IPO. And it is generally not expected that you will have liquidity prior to that. And you're waiting for those, for those hits to come to fruition. Um, over the last decade, like even in the Web2 world, we have started to see more of a blurring of the public and private markets. You have your private share sort of marketplace platforms like Forge and Shares Post, where institutional investors can trade shares often in slightly later stage companies. Um, and kind of buy them more light on the public markets, though it's still very, very manual and, and kind of not automated today. Um, and, you know, increasingly on the public market side as well, you see more venture-like companies getting listed publicly, right? With like facts that are happening and, and that kind of being the major trend with, you know, and, and even here in Canada, some reverse takeovers, things like that, right? So you're seeing both kind of more public market-like behavior in the private markets and private market-like behavior in the public markets. And mm -hmm. I think tokenization is a construct that sort of allows for the evolution of that and potentially for these worlds to blur even more, right? Like you would, you can imagine that if you're a venture fund investing in something that already has a token, you now no longer necessarily need to wait for an exit. Um, you can just sell your token and have liquidity. And so 
maybe investments going to zero becomes a thing that is less frequent because people just can can sell off something maybe even at a bit of a loss rather than rather than kind of taking the full hit. So I think tokenization uh, will play a huge role in, in how kind of the venture market looks in the future. Even today with, with crypto companies, you know, instead of a safe, a simple agreement for future equity, like we have with traditional uh, private companies, you've got these staff, which are simple agreements for future tokens uh, for companies that haven't yet done the token sale. So already uh, things are changing. And yeah, I think it'll, it'll basically just lead to kind of private and public companies being funded um, you know, in a way that is more one and the same over time, though I expect the evolution will still be gradual because, you know, NASDAQ and NYC, like all, all of that infrastructure isn't going anywhere, at least not anytime soon. But I think sure. this is an interesting kind of point in, in the evolution of, of private and public markets. It's so crazy to think about because it, like the trickle down effects too, is like, um, uh, I'm thinking I've worked for several startups and thinking like, how does tokenization affect early employees too? that are technically shareholders, right? It's like, mm-hmm. it's like, uh, you know, are there, are there uh, options that are, are really liquid? Cause right now early employees just have to, you know, usually on a four-year vest, one-year cliff and, and what happens when you leave, you have to pay for your shares and maybe they're on a secondary market, maybe they're not. And so um, like that from an employee perspective changes, changes things. Right. And with things like uh, staking, right. Could I stake my tokens back into my company to, to have the invest and earn yield with my, like there's, there's a dynamic there that's, that's really interesting all the way through, not just on the investment side, but employee side and, and, and things like that. So that whole, yeah, really like, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I, I was essentially done. I was like, it's like, it's like uh, you typically think of tokenization from a, 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 a buying and selling as like an investor or like speculating, mm-hmm. but I think DAOs are going to have some version of full-time employees, right. That, that are going to do that. And so what does that, what does that look like? Uh, what are those shares and investments in there right now? They're just kind of non-transferable, but eventually I think they're going to go to some, what I heard you alluding to is some sort of like hybrid, hybrid type model where, um, where it's like there's going to be a compensation plan that involves the same tokens that someone can buy um, on, on a on a secondary market. And so uh, just just really interesting to think about the the trickle down effects that this could have. Yeah, and that's just it. Like all of this, you know, the piece was was largely centered around venture and the future of venture, but all of this tokenization affects anyone who is a shareholder today and anyone mm-hmm. who might be a shareholder in the future, right? Like we, right. you know, in in crypto, we we do talk about you know giving ownership to customers more and to early fans and and kind of having them be equity owners rather than just like passive fans or consumers. And I think that makes a ton of sense. Even today, Mirror, uh, the, the online publishing platform uh, in the crypto space did an airdrop for 200 of their early users to say, hey, like this is based on your usage of the platform. We want to thank you for being an early supporter. We're going to give you wow. a token. And not only are we going to give you a token, you can share that token with others who you think should be on the platform, but maybe don't have the social capital to win the right race, which effectively is, is how people make it onto the platform today. So I think mm-hmm. even like examples like that with, with different airdrops, um, with you know, giving, giving ownership to those who may not have previously had it, um, I think all of those are things that tokenization will, will enable and will support. I'm even thinking on the other side of the fence, right? Even with something like customers and, and loyalty, right? It's just like, it's like having, having some of your, your best customers be uh, there's profit sharing on, on that side through tokenization. So it's just kind of like, it breaks down all these barriers, which, which were 
um, which were clearly defined. And, and now I think we're going to see kind of people experimenting with this with with non-traditional uh, frameworks and constraints that we would have prior done before. So it's just it's kind of a kind yeah. of a mind blowing thing that we're that we're on the on the cusp of. Um, if, you even, if you even think crazier beyond companies doing tokenization, like one thing I've heard people say a million times is like, man, I have so much faith in that person and their, their future. And I wish I could just invest in them. Right. Like I mm -hmm. wish I could buy, you know, a share of flex, right. And have, yeah. have upside in, in your future success. And like this potentially enables that, which like gets into all sorts of crazy, you know, regulatory things. And like, what does the construct look like? But like, you could imagine that this is where things are headed and it's not just companies. Um, that have ownership associated with them. So yeah, it opens up a ton of doors. I think I'm up 200% after you mentioning my name on the podcast, by the way. So, <laughs> so thank you. I, thank you. Uh, I should have invested sooner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I should have, yeah, I should have warned you. Uh, this was not planned. Um, that's so funny. So actually this is, this is a perfect, this is a perfect segue. So um, I'm going to share like a, a little bit, like a kind of a pseudo like story and a little bit about my background, but it, I think it does kind of set the, set the stage. So um, uh, for the last decade or so, I've been a you know, software engineer and I've seen this kind of gradual, like I'm very reluctant to say, but I've seen this gradual commoditization of, of product teams, essentially like, you know, 15 years ago, uh, spinning up a server and being able to take payments, you know, might've taken you months, if not a year. And those, both those things, spinning up a, a cluster on AWS and, and, and taking payments through Stripe is, it, both of those combined probably in an afternoon, which is which is crazy crazy to think about. So I, I've seen, and this is not a, a hard and fast rule, but the kind of the the holy grail now has becomes growth and distribution. Like with more and more people uh, out there, it's like the products, right? Rarely the best technology wins out, um, and it's more about who who can get the most eyeballs. And so, what I think is really really interesting, and that goes to the kind of the whole precipice of this of this of this podcast is around communities and social tokens and creators and things like that. Um, right now, you rarely see brands or companies doing equity deals with, with creators um, just because there's like paperwork and a lot of creators aren't, aren't used to understanding like how, like what a, what a, a vesting schedule looks like and things like that. But if you take an example, like someone like Mr. Beast who launched more hamburger restaurants overnight than in an outdated in 65 years, like those are kind of those are the those are the new companies. Like those are the people that if they're not launching a product themselves, they have a, a really strong um, uh, ability to to grow and explode uh, companies just almost almost overnight, uh, quite literally. So how how have you seen um, or do you have any thoughts on on creators and people who kind of use their influence across a bunch of social platforms? How are they going to get involved in and and become owners and invest social capital into some of these growing uh, companies versus maybe traditional capital? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think yeah. So if, if you think about creators and investing, I think you know a big part of it is just like education on on kind of how they how they get get access to these opportunities, right? Like if you're mm -hmm. a creator, you're maybe not, you know, in contact with a ton of brands, you don't you, you're kind of doing things on your own. And so it's how do we connect uh, creators with with companies that they may want to work with that they may want may want to invest in. Um, and I think it's hard to say, but I think a lot of it is just, you know, creator brand fit, right? How how do you connect how sure. do you connect the creators with a brand that is that is authentic that they identify with um and i think you know there are some interesting companies and platforms out there that are starting to do this um but yeah that's that's a good question it's uh it's still early days and i i feel like i don't have a good answer for that one 
No, no, that's, that's okay. It's just, I think that's another kind of trickle down effect that we haven't, haven't seen is some of the creators I've talked to are saying like, Hey, angel investing is, is cool now. Like, it's like, it's like less right, about right. of, of who's doing it, but it just, it seems like something where um, we've seen over the past, even, you know, call it five or six years. Hey, I've seen this on, on, on LinkedIn or on Twitter that they're angel investor. It sounds good. Obviously there's, there's some potential upside. Um, but I don't know the first place to begin as far as actually funding any of these companies, but I do have this large audience. And, and like you said, brand creator fit is going to, is going to be massive, but it's just kind of a, um, it's kind of an interesting thought that I've, 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 there was a lot of red tape before, or I would say hurdles to, to do that. Um, but now it'd be interesting to see how that plays into marketing campaigns for some of these early stage companies and how they can leverage some of the creators out there and, um, and, uh, and turn them into, into brand advocates as well. Yeah, I will say I do worry about it too, though. Like how all of this is easy to say in a bull market. Um, when, sure. when, you know, if you'd invested in a good chunk of companies over the last decade, they probably would have done really well, but when the cycle turns and then you've got, you know, say creators that perhaps don't have investment experience, I, like I do worry about, uh, people kind of, you know, getting into angel investing because it sounds sexy and losing their shirt. And, and I think, you know, there's still a level of diligence required, um, that maybe has, has been a little bit more muted in this, in this era of, of crazy, crazy capital being around. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately democratizing investing and ultimately collectivizing investing, which is kind of the next step after democratization, as David and I mm -hmm. talked about in the piece, is a good thing. Um, but I think we also do need to be aware of, of the risks for the average individual who, who doesn't spend all day kind of thinking about uh, investment decisions and, and going through spreadsheets. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fantastic point because um, with a low barrier comes, it's that, that's like not always a good thing, right? Sometimes these, these rules and procedures are set in place to, to protect people. So um, you're right, bull, bull, bull market when everything's up and to the right, it's like, oh, how do I get in? And um, we've already seen some people, you know, get scammed and, and cause a bad name for like the decentralized and, and Web3 space. So um, definitely point, point well taken. It's, it's not for everybody. It won't always be for everybody, but there's a, there's an interesting angle there that could kind of play into fruition coming down the road here. Um, speaking of down the road. So one thing that I thought was, was really interesting. I can't remember if I, if I heard you elsewhere, or maybe it's coming from the piece, but like the institutional and the tokenized communities are definitely going to live, um, uh, or they're definitely going to coexist. I, I don't think that institutional is going away for, for, for some time. Um, what is your kind of like five, five year crystal ball outlook on how companies are going to be funded, particularly in the, in the web three space um, and in uh, a kind of a mixture between the two and, and yeah, what is that? What is your, what is your kind of fortune teller with your fortune teller hat on? Like what is, what is the in investments into startups look like in the next five years or so? Yeah. Great question. And maybe I'll start with the sushi swap story that is in the piece. Yes, not, please do. Not everyone may have heard, because I think that's really interesting foreshadowing as to where, where the world is going. Um, so we, we talked about this in the piece, but something that happened over the past month or so was SushiSwap, which is one of the, the large decentralized exchanges that many, many folks are probably familiar with, uh, was going to raise a big venture round. I believe it was 30 million, but it was, it was somewhere in, in that ballpark. Um, and the, the terms of the raise had been proposed in the community forum. Uh, people were talking about it on Discord and, you know, it was all, all public given that SushiSwap is, uh, you know, a decentralized organization. And part, a part of the raise involved uh, a discount for the venture capitalists relative to the token price uh, that, that it has on the public market. And 
this has become something that, that does often happen in the crypto world where institutional investors are getting discounts on, on tokens as a way to kind of compensate them for the value they're adding and kind of the check sizes and all of that. And, you know, agree with that, if you will, or disagree with that. But that's, that is how, how, you know, it has played out for some companies. The sushi community decided they did not like the discount um, for, for this venture investor and did not think that the, you know, the financial whales, <laughs> as it were, um, should be getting a discount in this raise relative to the public market price. And so you actually had, uh, to the credit of, of Lightspeed, the fund that was going to lead the round, um, kind of jumping into the Discord and engaging with the, the sushi swap community at large and talking about ways they might work around this. Uh, and it sounds like, I don't know exactly how it was resolved, but I believe uh, Lightspeed and, and the other venture investors are no longer getting the discount. Um, they've worked out another situation where I think it's more like warrants where they have the right to purchase more shares at a specific price, but don't quote me on that. Anyway, all of that to say, I think you know the, the details are, are less important here. What I think is really interesting in terms of the narrative is that venture investors are having to engage with these communities um, in order to get deals done. The communities have a say in, in what these financings look like. And I just think it's a really interesting shift in the power dynamic, right? Historically, sure. venture capitalists have written term sheets behind closed doors and just negotiated with, with management. Whereas in, in this new model where these organizations are kind of owned and governed by the community at large, uh, the community is going to have, have a say in these decisions. And so to your question around what venture looks like in the next five years, I think it's going to be a lot more collaborative amongst the VCs and the communities. I think VCs are going to have to get their hands a lot dirtier and actually get in and, and do, do kind of the hard work in, in the discords, in getting to know people, building relationships in the space, as opposed to just kind of having power because of the capital that they have. Um, and so, as I said, I don't think institutional venture is going away anytime soon. I think there is still certainly a role to play, but I do think in five years from now, fundraisers will be more community-led um, we'll have kind of venture investors and, um, and communities coexisting much more and a lot more individual investors um, kind of coming to the table through these, these collectives. So that's kind of how I, I see the evolution. I expect it will be gradual. Um, and I think, I think, yeah, the power dynamics will, will just change. So would you classify what happened with that? And thanks for, thanks for sharing that. I thought that was really, really interesting when I kind of heard rumblings of that going on. And then, you know, the article really reminded me of that. And uh, there was even a snippet of, in, in there of like actual, I think, uh, text that was sent in the discord from a member of, of Lightspeed, which is, which was fascinating. Um, is this like a, like a, what is the magnitude of that event? Like, was that like a watershed moment? Like, oh my God, Lightspeed actually has to go in and interact with the people of the community to possibly get this done or, or keep their discount or, or whatever. Um, or is this kind of like, hey, um, we're so new. Like they didn't really know what to do because they never really seen anything like that. It's not a big deal. Like, how would you rate that 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 magnitude? Like, because you, you mentioned something really important is like there was a there was a shift in power there where it's like a bunch of people with not the the, the power that that Lightspeed has is now um, interacting with them on a way that we've never quite seen. So from from a very from someone who's never been on the investor and institutional side like myself, that seems massive. But I would be curious to hear your opinions on that from the institutional side. Is that like mind-blowing or is that like kind of to be expected in something uh, as new and emergent as Web3? Yeah, no, to me, I think it's a really big deal. I think it's, mm -hmm. I think it's a huge data point. It's very possible that others data points like this have happened in other communities that I just haven't heard of, but this one was probably, mm -hmm. you know, a, a loud one on Twitter, at least kind of because of, you know, it being kind of big players and, and all of this happening in public. Um, I expect this has probably happened for 
a lot of other decisions that Dallas have had to make, whereby, you know, they need community approval, and maybe those decisions didn't involve VCs, right? It just changes the decision making process and kind of the openness around all of this. But yeah, I think I think it is the, the beginning of a huge shift. Because as I said, venture has generally been, you know, behind closed doors, the VCs negotiating with the CEO directly, um, you know, the rest of the company typically doesn't see all of what's going on, let alone like the, the public community at large with literally anyone being able to step into the discord. So I think it is a pretty, pretty important data point and story. And that's why I keep telling it because I just find it so interesting and so different from how how the world of institutional venture typically works. Yeah, no, it's it's crazy. It reminds me, I'm a huge basketball fan. I mean, the Crosshouse is definitely, definitely basketball related. And uh, Packy McCormick read an uh, awesome article about the shift from uh, teams and ownership uh, towards towards the players. And that was like, that was like a, a 30 year uh, transition, but like, as, yeah, so as liquid we, super teams, liquid super teams, crosshouse, yeah, yeah. not because crosshouse gets a shout out in there, but I do love that article as a basketball fan. Um, so I didn't know you uh, got a shout out in there. That's amazing. Yeah. Crosshouse. Yeah. He, he mentioned us, um, cool. uh, in, in that one. So, uh, pack is great. I can't wait to have him, have him on as well. But, um, but I, like, I see rumblings of, of something like that where it's just like, uh, it's not going to be overnight and just like, uh, players, when they get drafted, the teams essentially had life rights where the player was on that team until, um, uh, until they were traded or they retired, which is, which is, which is crazy. Um, and then they introduced free agency. And then we saw with LeBron, there's actually collusion with friends to actually come join, take pay cuts to actually join a team to possibly win a championship. So you see this massive, like I said, 30 year transition, but it moved completely from the, uh, the organization's uh, to the players, uh, but the team is still that atomic unit and, and you still need the teams and the organizations to actually facilitate. So uh, I agree. It was a pretty massive thing. And I think that it was kind of this, this, although it was a, it was kind of a, like you said, it's a pretty big data point. Um, there's still a lot that has to happen, has to come out and there might be setbacks. But when I saw that or heard that I was, I was, I was sh- shocked, I guess is the, is the way to put it, that, that, that something like that uh, could happen. There was so much power. Um, I guess I'll, I'll keep this one quick, um, but like, is that transparency from the company necessarily a, a good thing? Um, like I've been at a couple of different startups and um, like the CEOs had varying levels of experience of, in fundraising and some it's really quick and some it took, took a long time. But like part of that behind the closed doors is like not everything was transparent. And like, obviously that depends, you know, CEO to CEO, some things, everything's behind the closed doors, some things it's very trickle down. Um, but if anyone who's a member of a, of an open discord could potentially have a say in something like that, um, is that, is that necessarily good for, for the company? Um, and I'm sure it's nuanced, but like, uh, it's kind of radical shift of how we've done, have uh, done things in the past. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think we're at this point in kind of the DAO excitement where everyone is just like, DAO everything, open everything, let's go, it's chaos, let's let's see what happens and, and you know, open and get to the community and, and, and let's do it. Um, mm-hmm. Even in the DAOs that I'm, you know, and, and discords that I'm part of, I think you see some of the, the downfalls of that, less so so far from like a, a privacy of information standpoint, at least I think just based on how early it is and more so from like a coordination standpoint, like it's, you know, you have someone who participates once and then never joins again. Well, should they be allowed to see all of this information? Like there's a lot of questions like that. Um, I expect DAOs will eventually over time become like more gated. You know, you've got DAOs like friends with benefits that are token gated. um, And I expect we'll start to have those types of mechanisms that like 
control it in a little bit more of a structured way. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's many good reasons that, you know, a lot of companies today typically don't disclose that amount of information. There's also some reasons that probably are, are less beneficial, right? Like there's, there's, I think in general, I would say companies should probably be more open than they typically are. Um, but I think crypto has gone like all the way to the other end of, end of the spectrum when there's like probably some happy medium that might be a little bit more, um, coordinated and optimal. So we'll see. I think we're, we're in, in the period where it's just like a state of disarray and, and chaos and excitement. Um, but I do expect that, that over time people will, will rethink things a little bit. Yeah, it's going to be really cool for sure. Like I'm, I, we're going through this right now and I'm like, oh, I, I kind of do it because I was like a Dow Pierce. I'm like, yeah, and then you seem like, oh, there's there's quite a lot of advantages to being uh, 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 centralized or having some sort of like hierarchy in a sense. So probably falling somewhere on the, on a, on the hybrid model makes the makes the most sense. But figuring that out and taking time to actually uh, figure out what that what that looks like, I think is going to, it's going to take yeah, some time. And I, I actually I wrote a piece about this a while back called Decentralization is Not Binary. Whereas, and it's, I, I hate in crypto how there's all these debates over like, is that protocol 100% decentralized? Is it truly decentralized? And decentralization exists on so many spectrums, you know, technical mm-hmm. decentralization, um, you know, in terms of how your teams are structured, uh, in terms of governance and voting rights. Like there are so many dimensions that can be centralized or decentralized. And each of those in and of itself is a spectrum. It's not, it's not binary, right? Like you could have an organization that is, you know, totally vertical and just as one, one line of direct reports, or you could have a totally flat organization, but realistically today, most organizations are somewhere in between, right? So I think, I think in crypto, we, we talk in too much of a purist way about decentralization. And I think, um, I think some combination of centralized and decentralized structures uh, will, will probably end up being optimal for a lot of, of companies and, and DAOs. Oh, this is great. We have a, I, my friends and I debate uh, about this all the time. And I'm like, some say, Hey, it's just not there yet. So call them, you know, pure web too. Some people are only decentralized. Hey, if it's not decentralized, don't do it. Um, I'm like, what happened to web 2.5? Like, I think we, we can like ease, ease into this. And, and uh, there's some things that, that totally serve justice to be, to be decentralized, but not quite everything. So I agree with that, that sentiment hundred percent. And I will, I will read and link that in the show notes too, because that sounds that sounds like I'll I'll have some ammo. You're you you articulate things way better than I do. So next time we have a debate, I'll just take lines directly from <laughs> from, from, from your article and, and and spew those out. I feel um, like that's what I do when I debate with David. <laughs> <laughs> totally cheat and take, take their own lines. That's the way to do exactly, it. Exactly, exactly. Uh, well, I think thanks so much um, uh, for 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 joining. Like for those, if you knew the kind of trouble that we went through, she was awesome. I was having internet problems. We tried a few times and it didn't work. So um, I think it's worth knowing that that, uh, that I sincerely appreciate that. Like you're, you're I'm sure you're really, really busy and working on your next ma- masterpiece. So uh, thanks for thanks for the rescheduling. It was completely on my fault, but I really enjoyed the conversation and, uh, and uh, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks Flex. This has been super fun. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks so much. And I will, I will, I'm sure I'll see you on Twitter in, in the Twitter sphere and, um, we'll go back and forth and I got to get David on too. I like you beat David yeah, here, yeah. um, which, which means a lot, but, uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll get him on here as well. And I'm looking forward to your next post. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, cool. Thank you.